Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. Well, um, he was a young university student who was searching for happiness, the meaning of life, and he searched through leadership positions, through parties, and he even searched in the church. It sounds like many or most of you who are university students also on the search for happiness and the meaning of life. Well, this young man noticed a group of students who were engaged in a Bible study. And one of the young ladies, he noticed, was so radiant. So he asked this young lady why she was so radiant. She replied, Jesus Christ. To which he retorted, oh, for heaven's sake, don't give me that garbage about religion. I didn't say religion, she replied. I said, Jesus Christ. And then this young man was invited by those students to intellectually examine Christ's claims, to examine the evidence that supported Christianity. He accepted that challenge, and finally he admitted that after much study and much research, he couldn't refute the evidence. His name is Josh McDowell. His research went on to be the basis for a very well-read book, perhaps you've read it yourself, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Well, Josh McDowell, years later, was asked by one of his students, Professor McDowell, why can't you intellectually refute Christianity? For a simple reason, he replied, I am not able to explain away an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking, I'm sure, to many of you who are here today because you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My hope is today, not only are you ever more convinced in his resurrection, but also in his incomparably great power available to us who believe that today. See, many attempts have been made to refute the resurrection. Some have tried to say that it was the Roman soldiers or the Jewish leaders that stole the body. Well, the record states that they were the ones who conspired to make sure that it could not be stolen. And besides, when the disciples began proclaiming him as a risen savior, those very same Roman soldiers or Jewish leaders who may have been thought to have stolen the body, they could have simply produced the body as the disciples began to claim that Jesus had risen from the grave. And then they could have quenched the movement that had begun to threaten their leadership. Some have tried to claim that the disciples stole the body. Well, let's remember too that they weren't expecting a resurrection. The record shows that from their testimony of what happened after that, that they weren't expecting at all that the Lord would rise again, even though he had told them. And remember that the tomb was guarded and sealed. The stone could not have been removed secretly. And besides this, if they had stolen the body, could they really have maintained a conspiracy based on a lie? And consider this, they wouldn't have selected women as the witnesses to the empty tomb. Now, this is no diss against women, but in those days, the testimony of women was not trusted. Good thing we've come a long way from there. But the women, could they have been gone to the wrong tomb? Maybe it's those of you who don't trust women either. But the women were at the burial with Joseph of Arimathea. They could not have gone to the wrong tomb. And the disciples then would also have been at the wrong tomb, discovering it to be empty then. No, Christ's reappearance as is resurrected Jesus Christ, was witnessed by so many. And it was that testimony that transformed their lives of his followers 
and that testimony was undeniable. As his disciples, once fearful and scattered, now they turned the world upside down with what they had seen and what they had experienced, and they've had immeasurable influence on history ever since. The fact that you and I are here today as the church of Jesus Christ, worshiping him, is testimony to their vigilance and their willingness to die, even for something that may have sounded so foolish back then. Now, having believed in the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, today I hope that we'll understand this incomparably great power of the resurrection that was exerted in Christ and is also exerted in us. So today my hope is that we don't only celebrate his, the fact, the historical fact that Christ rose, but that we also rejoice in what that resurrection means for us today as you and I live out our daily lives. Three fundamental uh, facts and truths about Christ's resurrection. And so if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter one, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Ephesians. And if I have to choose a chapter that could be my favorite chapter, it would be chapter one. And if I could choose some verses that would be my favorite, it would probably be these verses. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul mentions his prayer for the Ephesians, and I'll read to you from verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That is a foundational fact for us to accept and believe. Jesus went from being the humble servant to the glorious Christ. The disciples, they knew Jesus from his lowly beginnings. He was just a baby in Mary's arms. He was the son of a simple carpenter. He was a teacher and a healer who blessed people and changed their lives. And these disciples had also seen him hanging on that cross, pouring out his blood and eventually dying and being buried. But then these disciples also witnessed that he rose from the grave and they witnessed his many appearances. Even more, now they had seen the same risen Jesus ascend into heaven and disappear into the clouds. And ever since that ascension, the Holy Spirit has descended on them and they experienced his transforming power Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and ascension was as real as any event that any of them had ever experienced in their lives. And so when you and I study the life of Christ, perhaps sometimes we focus so much on his humility as the humble servant that sometimes we neglect to focus on the fact that he is also the glorious risen Christ. Because just like those disciples, the apostles, we live on this side of the cross and the resurrection where you and I can experience all the effects of what Christ accomplished as he ministered on earth. He rose victorious over sin and death and is today seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And so as those of us who believe in Jesus as a Christ, we ought to be living and experiencing that victory over the sinful actions and habits of our past. 
And that's also why Paul prays this prayer for those in Ephesus, that they too would know this incomparably great power of the resurrection. So friends, you and I must live in this glorious reality that Christ is risen and ascended, seated above all powers and all authorities and principalities. Think of a significant event in your life where the memory is still vivid. For those of you who are married, perhaps it's your wedding day. The event was so real to you, as real as the nose on your face, and you can perhaps still even imagine as you stood there at the altar. Or some of you who have children, that day that they were born, how many of you can still vividly remember the reality that now you are suddenly a mother or a father? Or those of you who have adopted a child, the day that you brought that child home, you don't forget those experiences. They are as real as the nose on your face. Or perhaps some tragedy, an accident, or the death of your pet or a loved one. Well, Christ's resurrection and his glorious return to heaven were just as real to the disciples and they have faithfully passed on their testimony because of the reality of those events that affect us who believe that as well today. Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven is the most foundational truth you and I have to believe today. But even more significant, or maybe as significant, is the fact that the same power that God raised Christ from the dead with is the same incomparably great power available to us who believe. Who is Paul addressing here in, Ephes in Ephesians? He's addressing the saints, those who were set apart. And if you go back to the beginning of chapter one, you'll see that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He had predestined us to be adopted as his sons or his children. And we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we who have, as Paul says, put our hope in Christ, in verse 12, we were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What is the gospel? Gospel simply means the good news. And what is that good news? Well, that Jesus was sent by God to take away the sins of the world. He was the atoning sacrifice for your sins and mine, just like an Old Testament lamb would do when his blood was shed for the sins of Israel. And you and I, who are the chosen children of God, have believed the gospel when we heard of Jesus Christ, and therefore, Paul says, we are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Well, it is then Paul's prayer, not only for the Ephesians, but also for us today, for us to know God better. How? Through the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why should we know God better? If we've already believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, well, so that we can understand and experience this incomparably great power that is at work in us and available to every believer, that same divine power of God, which Paul says he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He describes this power using a word for incomparably that means all surpassing, far exceeding, much greater, transcending, that there's no other power that can compare to the power exerted in Christ and in you and me who believe. Well, this great power is great enough to raise the dead. And I know that it may be difficult for some of us to believe the dead rising. Dead seems so final, doesn't it? Or death does. Well, I believe in a God who's able to create this remarkable universe. 
just consider the vastness of the universe and the physical laws that govern the solar system and the galaxies, all of it point to a creator. Some have tried to say that it all just popped into existence out of nothing. Well, there are complexities in our natural world. There are amazing designs within the animal kingdom. It is highly unlikely that those fascinating and wonderful details occurred by mere chance. Yes, I may be a realist, but I don't have that much faith that all of it could have just happened by chance. I believe in a very powerful, divine, intelligent designer who has the ability to design and create and govern this amazing universe and to sustain life, its diversity of animals and fish and insects and reptiles and birds and all of that. And so I believe in a God who not only designed all that, but he can also give us the capacity to think and to feel and to make decisions. And considering all that we've learned through scientific study, how can one still say that it happened by chance, an event whose probability is next to zero? Well, God has the power to create the universe and the earth and its solar system. He certainly then can have the power to raise the dead back to life. Now, it may be difficult for some to believe that this same Jesus was actually sent by God as a sacrificial atonement. I get that. Some people don't believe in the good news about Jesus Christ. They're simply not ready to accept that Jesus truly was a historical figure. Or some may accept that he was historical, but they don't believe he was anything more than a wise sage who had some helpful things to say. And then still others believe most of what's said about him, just not his claims to be sent from God. Well, the New Testament is a collection of faithful accounts from those who witnessed Jesus actually teaching and actually performing the miracles that proved his claims to be sent from God. They spoke to him, ate with him, even after he was raised from the dead. And they stood there observing as he ascended into heaven. And so as unbelievable as their testimony may seem to some and may have sounded to those in their day, remember they were willing to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his claims and his miracles that accompanied them even at the threat of scourging and imprisonment and death. And despite even the best efforts of those who were in power at that time, the followers of Jesus Christ were able to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to the far reaches of the known world. And we here are testifying to the fact that that gospel has even reached us. So yes, I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and I no longer need to be convinced that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The struggle really is, do I still believe in this incomparably great power in, at work in me to overcome all of the sins of the flesh. Friends, it took that divine, incomparably, incomparably great power to do that in Christ, and it is available to us who believe. And when you consider what God did with that power, to place Christ at the highest place of authority, he demonstrated that great power by giving him the ultimate authority. Although he was born to a, a young Jewish couple that were nobodies except the fact that they had a common ancestor in King David, although he was born in an obscure village, that had no mention except from a prophet named Micah, had mentioned it once some 800 years prior that the anointed one of God would come from there. And where he was born didn't even belong to his own parents. No, it was a borrowed stable. And as an adult, Jesus traveled and roamed the dusty roads of Galilee and Samaria and Judea, having no place to call his own, no pillow to rest his head on. 
Well, at first he did gather a lot of followers, but then many disowned him. And especially as he hung there on the cross and sentenced to death, even his closest followers deserted him for a time. But then look at what Paul says about what happened. Verse 20, that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Friends, you need some great power to exercise that kind of supreme authority. You know, power often uh, comes, uh, it, it, power often gives the person the authority that they need. If you're a parent here today, obviously you're stronger than your own children. It surprises me sometimes how parents will complain that they can't get their two-year-old to take a bath or to brush her teeth or to go to bed on time. It makes you wonder how large is this child <coughs> that they can't get to take a bath, right? Or if you have a nation that has a greater military power that oftentimes they use that power to exercise authority over other countries and establish it over their people. Well, once you have the power, it doesn't always mean that you'll always exercise your authority rightly. And very often you have those who will depend on their position of authority to influence others and then thereby also abuse their power. But Paul's point is this, is if you have, a great, if you have great power, then you have great authority. <clears throat> and this power was exercised not only to raise Jesus from the dead, but to seat him in the most supreme seat of all authority. And he's saying that that very same incomparably great power has not only raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, but get this, friends, it has also raised you and me from being dead to our trespasses and sins or in our trespasses and sins and has seated us together with Christ in the heavenly places. So believing in Jesus then would demonstrate that this incomparably great power exercised in raising Christ from the dead has already been exercised in you and me when we left our life of sin, where we were formerly dead in our trespasses, where we used to follow the ways of this world, where we used to be under the power of the Spirit who continues to work in those who are disobedient to God. So what we need to believe now is that same power is available for us to, tra to transform us, even today, into the likeness of Christ's character. We who believe are his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are the church, the assembly of believers, and Christ fills us each individually, but also every time that we're gathered, even as few as two or three, then Christ is present amidst us. And friends, that power is available to us as long as we abide in him. What Paul is saying here is essentially what Jesus said when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. The reason that Jesus uses this analogy of a vine with branches is to bring home the fact that we have to remain connected to him. If we are to bear any fruit that resembles his character, he said this, that no branch can bear fruit by itself, but it must remain or abide in the vine. Isn't that so simple to understand? Yes. And he went on to say that neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Well, that should be just as equally easy for us to understand, that for us to be able to bear fruit, we have to remain connected to the vine. And if a man remains in me and I in him, Jesus went on to say, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And so here's the truth I want us to understand today, that this abundant life that Jesus Christ offers those who are willing to follow him is the fullness of his own life in us. Just like branches enjoying the life of the vine. You probably want to be the best version of yourself. You probably also want to enjoy life and its good things. You probably also want to do away with the sins that so easily beset us. Well, God has great and wonderful plans for us, for us to live life to the fullest. And the only thing that's keeping us is sin, because anything that is against his will, anything that is against his plan, will keep us from experiencing this abundant life. And the reality is this, that you can never become what God expects you to be unless you abide in Christ. And there's some things you can specifically do, things you can specifically apply even today to continue to abide in Christ because abiding in him makes this incomparably great power of God available to us on an everyday basis. Your best life is possible as long as you abide in Christ. And the concept of vine and branches, friends, it should not be so complicated, is it? And yet it's so surprising how many of us as Christians think that we can still live the Christian life without remaining connected to Christ. We think we can overcome our sinful habits in our own strength. We think we can bear much fruit through just being our normal selves. Well, then we've missed out on the truth of the resurrection because his resurrection is what makes us alive by his incomparable great power. You and I may still get frustrated that we're not as humble as we should be or content or patient or pure or as diligent as we should be, but that's because we haven't drawn upon Christ's power. We may be powerless to change, but the power is made available to us in Christ. So what does it mean for us to remain in Christ? What does it mean to be like a branch and stay connected to the vine? Because we know we can't draw power from Christ unless we consciously are committed to depending on him instead of ourselves. Well, you can demonstrate that you, dem that you depend on him by always communicating with him about the things that you're dealing with. I know that you probably communicate with Christ about the things that you are certain you can't handle or you can't control, like asking for healings, asking for salvation of someone that you love, asking for protection, intervention, provision. Well, you and I need to learn to communicate with him about all of those things that we thought we could handle, but really we can't handle. We can communicate about him about being set free from the sins of pride and envy and anger and lust and sloth and gluttony and greed so that we can bear his character qualities of humility and contentment and patience, purity and diligence and self-control. And you know what communicating with Christ requires? Yes, this is another one of those simple questions. It requires time spent together. And how do you spend time with Christ, communicating with him? Well, you read from his word and you pray. And I know that the Christian life isn't only about Bible reading and prayer, but you know you cannot live the Christian life without Bible reading and prayer. And so these, this is one of the things that you can do specifically. And I, maybe I should just look down so that no one's thinking that I'm talking about them. But all of us could do with a little bit more time spent in reading his word and in prayer. 
So if you want that incomparably great power of God to be your source of power, to become what God expects you to be, then it has to start with spending more time communicating with Christ, and practically speaking, that means more time reading the Bible and in prayer. It doesn't end there, but I think that most of us would admit that our time spent abiding with Christ is a significant improvement that we need, both in quality and in quantity. But you know what? Transformation into the image of Christ also requires that you live in a community of fellow believers. In our life group, the men's group that meets on every other Wednesday, we're studying a study called Transformation with Chip in uh, Ingram as our teacher. And it is in interesting that that is one of the most significant things that causes us to grow in Christ and be transformed, is if we are not only abiding in Christ, but also that we are abiding in a community of fellow believers. Because this fellowship of believers is the body of Christ today. We cannot neglect meeting together with believers and feasting together on his word. The reality is that learning and growing and being held accountable to apply what you've learned only happens in a community. And I'm not talking about just regular church attendance. And I know some of us struggle with that. I'll look down again so no one's, I'm, I'm not looking at anyone specifically. I know some of us struggle with regular church attendance, but it isn't just regular church attendance. It's being part of a group, a community where you can share the things that you're learning and ask them to hold you accountable to the areas that you'd like to grow in. So it is critical for us to realize that if we truly want to experience this incomparably great power of God to transform us into his likeness, not only do we need to spend time reading his word and in prayer, but also spend time in fellowship with other believers. Friends, we all have time. As Chip Ingram says, no one has too little time. Everyone has priority issues. And that is the reality, because if it was important to us, we would spend the time. It only takes 18 hours and 20 minutes to read the New Testament. Yes, 18 hours and 20 minutes at pulpit rate. So that's an average of three minutes every day for a year and you'll have made it through the New Testament. Who doesn't have three minutes every day of the year? Well, then you'll have read the entire New Testament by then. And yet so many of us would have to admit, oh, we're just too busy to spend time in communication with Christ. You and I are committed to time in the gym, or maybe some of you are, watching movies and TV series, playing our recreational sports, and yet so many of us have to admit that we're just too busy to spend time in a life group or discipleship group or just a small group of friends that can hold us accountable to the things that we're learning and living out. Well, one thing is also true, that we have an enemy whose agenda is to make sure that we don't come anywhere near this incomparably great power. This enemy wants to make sure that all those who are still under his influence, the rest of the world who is still dead in their trespasses and sins, do not discover this resurrection power of Jesus Christ. He is at work in those who are disobedient, and he continues to be today. But then there's those of us who've already been made alive in Christ. We are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We have already experienced this power of God. So for the enemy, the next best thing is to try to prevent us from bearing any fruit that will last. How does he do that? To make sure that we don't have enough time, we're too busy, 
to spend our time with Christ. Or we're too busy to spend our time in fellowship with other believers and we'd rather spend our time on entertainment and amusement. So friends, as I close, consider this. Does sin still have a certain mastery over you? Take pride. Are you still often too proud to admit that you're wrong sometimes? Or envy. Can you look at an expensive car or a well-appointed house and not at all feel the desire that you wish it was yours? Or anger, are you still impatient with your own children or your coworkers or the driver who's on the road with you? Or lust or sloth or gluttony or greed? <clears throat> Excuse me, if we're honest, I think we'd have to admit all of us fall short of God's standard. And friends, the, the transformation, the remedy happens when we abide in Christ when we tap into that incomparably great power of the resurrected Jesus Christ that is made available to us today. Like the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in his day, we should pray that we know this incomparably great power for us who believe. Because we are otherwise powerless, yes, but he can, in his power, make us become what he wants us to be. You know, it's interesting that in, the, in any 12-step program, like with Alcoholics Anonymous, that the first step is always to admit that you're powerless to change. And that's where we have to be, that without Christ, we'd be powerless to change. But we also have to acknowledge and make a conscious decision to then tap into the power that is available for us to change. And that is to abide in Christ. Because the incomparable, great power of the resurrection is available to us who believe and who abide in Christ. Let us pray. Our Lord, as we bow before you, we first want to acknowledge that sometimes the reality of your resurrection doesn't play a part in our everyday life, or at least we don't notice it. And sometimes we focus too little on the fact of your glorious resurrection and that you are seated in the heavenly places and that every spiritual blessing is made available to us. And so as now we come before you, Lord, we admit not only our shortcomings, but our utter dependence upon you. Lord, we pray that Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day is a reality every day of the week. May we each day abide in you by reading your word, spending time in prayer, and remaining in fellowship with other believers consistently, regularly, frequently. And I pray, Lord, that you would do great and mighty things that would demonstrate your power and your authority in our midst through us. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC CPH. Thank you for listening.